Welcome to In Place, where we have conversations with neighbors, volunteers, and professionals in the Commonwealth, linking local stories to global issues of displacement and resettlement. I'm Katie Powell. And I'm Rebecca Hester. As your host, our goal is to illuminate how everyone, no matter their background, has some connection to displacement. In this episode of In Place, our student hosts, Laura Lane and Virginia Bulos, speak with Dr. Lauren Powell. At the time of their interview in August 2019, Dr. Powell was the Director of Health Equity for the state of Virginia. The youngest person to have ever held this position and the only one with a PhD, Dr. Powell's leadership at the Department of Health was characterized by a drive to tackle racism and oppression and to promote equitable health outcomes for all. Recently named among Fortune's 40 under 40 in healthcare, Dr. Powell is now the president and CEO of the Equitist LLC, and she serves as the vice president for U.S. Health Equity and Wellness at Takata Pharmaceuticals. Laura and Virginia met Dr. Powell when she was invited to be the keynote speaker at the annual Refugee Wellness Conference, sponsored by the Northern Virginia Refugee Wellness Coalition and held at George Mason University in Manassas, Virginia. On the heels of delivering a very powerful talk about the importance of health equity for refugee wellness, Dr. Powell shares her views on the myth of individual responsibility for health, the need for health leaders to understand, accept, and address structural racism, and the varied kinds of displacement that can impact the health, not only of refugees and immigrants, but also of those born in the United States. Her overall message is that health is a collective responsibility, not a personal choice and we would all be better off if we treated it as such. Thanks for having me. My name is Dr. Lauren Powell. I'm the Director of the Office of Health Equity for the Virginia Department of Health. I've been in Virginia for about a year and a half, and I've been in my position for that long as well. Prior to being in Virginia, I uh, was finishing my academic training in Uh, New England, actually. So I did my PhD in clinical and population health research with a concentration in racial and ethnic health disparities, followed by, out of sequence, a master's in public administration at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. And so I'm really happy to be serving in my capacity and working to try to achieve health equity for all Virginians. Fantastic. Thank you. That was that was wonderful. First off, Rebecca was telling us that we needed to get you to talk about equity and power. And so um, we were kind of wondering like where you could take that in the scope of like healthcare and mental health within these communities. Sure. I think it's the imbalance of power and it is the distribution of power in an imbalanced way that is truly driving a lot of the inequities we see in society in general, but specifically in healthcare, in health equity, if we want to say it that way. When I talk a lot to uh, different audiences and when I talk about health equity, I constantly have to help people understand that it is the social conditions that is overwhelmingly driving the health outcomes that we see in populations such as refugee and immigrant populations, racial and ethnic minorities. We know that the social determinants of health this really long, like bulky phrase that really just means your social conditions, your life conditions, where you live, work, and play really has more of an influence on your health outcomes than the 10 to 15 minutes I spend in front of my doctor on occasion. So that means whether or not I have access to a good job, a well-paying job, to stable housing, to 
healthy foods, and all of that is still encompassed by a larger sphere of power. And it is those power imbalances, we can go back to historic policies like redlining, that systematically, systemically, and institutionally stripped power out of certain neighborhoods and took power away from certain people. Those conditions, fast forward to now, have driven some of the health outcomes we have in those areas. And so it really can't be overemphasized enough how much our inequities have been driven by power. Absolutely. So like you brought up the social conditions. Do you mind kind of expanding on that? Talking about like those specific social conditions sure. um, and giving a couple of examples. Sure. Well, as we talk specifically about refugee populations, social conditions of like fear, you know, fear around deportation, around detention, around, you know, being called out essentially for being, quote, other and for not necessarily being from America or American, quote unquote, whatever that really means. That has a lot of health implications as well. Right. So if I'm constantly worried about whether I'm going to be called out, you know, for being here in this country, maybe not necessarily the way that other people deem I should be here, that is a level of stress, chronic stress. We know that there are historic studies that show that stress can contribute to mental health, right? So depression and other forms of mental health distress, physiological conditions like obesity, anxiety, right? Like these are very like tangible outcomes of conditions that have been man-made. So we don't have to stress people out the way that we do. We don't have to have exclusionary policies. We don't have to shame people for needing to find refuge in another place for safety, for the well-being of themselves and their children. We don't have to create the conditions for xenophobia. We don't. Mm -hmm. But it is those conditions that are having a grave impact on people's health. And that's not okay. Absolutely. So when you were talking about kind of your background and your education, you brought up racial and ethical health disparity. Um, can you kind of expand on that? Tell us a little bit more about like what that means. Mm -hmm. I decided I wanted to study population health and I was interested in understanding sort of how population health like varies from public health. And, and while I was learning about sort of epidemiology, biostatistics, like the classic training, I felt like I knew from my own life experience and from the experiences of people in my family that there's a very unique sort of, I guess, experience that, that racial and ethnic minorities have in trying to become healthy, trying to be well. And I wanted to have a specific concentration in that. I wanted to know, study that as in depth as I possibly could. And so my dissertation was actually looking at ways to increase diversity in clinical research and looking at is the lack of participation or the underrepresentation of racial and ethnic minorities to include immigrant and refugee populations as well. In clinical research, could that also be an underlying driver of health inequities? Now, to dial that all the way back, well, why would it be then that perhaps racial and ethnic minorities are hesitant to participate in clinical trials, are reluctant to want to go to the doctor? Well, that comes back to mistrust. Well, why would they mistrust the medical system and why would they mistrust healthcare providers? Well, because they may not have been treated equitably in the past. And so to your initial question about power, 
that it's really still about power and balance, right? In my ancestry, so I'm African American, and my ancestors did not choose to come here, but were captured and enslaved and brought here, which is a significant difference to those who have to flee to this country. But the treatment has been the same, right? And that's something to consider. That's something that's really important to consider. So in my particular ancestry, African Americans are still very much reluctant to participate in clinical trials and to go to the doctor regularly. I battle this with my family, my my own parents even. And I'm like, yo, this is what I studied. Like, listen to me. (laughs) But it is that deeply ingrained that there is such a significant and warranted mistrust of people in these institutions because of what they have done to my people and to their parents and to, you know, their grandparents. And again, that boils down to power, mm-hmm. still boils down to power. How can healthcare providers and policymakers attempt to correct some of that power imbalance? Mm-hmm. Well, and short of short of rewriting point. history yeah. 400 yeah. years ago, <laughs> I think that there has to be an invested and intentional effort to become more community integrated. And so I actually shy away, even in the Virginia Department of Health, I'm trying to push us to be more thoughtful about our language beyond community engagement, because engagement just means I deal with you when I want to, right? That doesn't mean that we have an ongoing relationship, we have an ongoing partnership. That means I talk to you when I need to, and then I don't talk to you when I don't need to. I would like to push us to be community integrated, which means I am the community and the community is me. So what happens in the community impacts me. So that gives me a different level of responsibility, uh, a different level of accountability in my actions. And if we can push legislators, policymakers, other stakeholders and leaders who have decision-making authority in our society to see themselves as a part of the community, not governing over the community, not responsible for policing the community, but as a part of the community. I think that's how we start to shift some of the imbalances of power. Because the other thing is we say a lot in in public health, we need to empower the community. But that's like saying that there isn't power there already, right? Like empower means I'm going to give you power. No power and balance, right? No, the power is already there, right? It may have been stripped away over time, generationally, by policies and other forms of oppression, but the power is already there. And so for legislators to recognize the inherent power that is already there in communities, that's one way to shift these imbalances. And the other way then is to see yourself as a part of the community. Gosh. So... You were talking about being thoughtful about language and like doing that within your work and how that's important. Mm-hmm. Um, could you kind of provide, could you provide an example of that and like what that yes, looks like? gladly. So very gladly. So community engagement is one. I would say, so a lot of times we talk about refugee and immigrant populations as well as like communities of color. We say vulnerable communities. When you think of vulnerable, like what comes to mind when you think of vulnerable? Weak. Weak. Needing help. Weak, needing help, unable to take care of themselves, Mm -hmm. right? I don't think that that's the appropriate, that's not the appropriate way to illustrate a group of people who are not weak, 
who are in fact very determined and have overcome life-threatening obstacles. Mm -hmm. And so I'm challenging myself as I have been challenging others to reframe our language around that. It's not a vulnerable community. Maybe it's marginalized. Maybe it is systematically excluded. So it's shifting the language from being one of like victim blaming per se Mm -hmm. to blaming the system that created this. I'll say another challenge that I have, and I I haven't figured out a better like word for it yet, but resilient communities, building Mm -hmm. resilient communities. So resilience is a wonderful attribute. It is something that refugee communities, racial and ethnic minorities, the African-American community, Latino, all these other communities that have been systematically and and systemically oppressed, it is a wonderful quality that we have. But I'm troubled in public health and in other avenues where we talk about building resilient communities in the sense that it is a label of accomplishment in a sense. Now it is it is an accomplishment to have made it like through whatever you made it through, right? But to me, I don't think that that fully encaptures the necessity to be resilient, right? So communities aren't resilient because they want to be. They are they're resilient because they have to be. They have, yeah. they have to fight to survive. And I I'm just, you know, it's a it's a personal challenge for me as I'm thinking about what does our language say about the populations that we're working with? We're, we're trying to build resiliency in children now. We're talking about ACEs. We're trying to build resilient communities. But that does not, to me, call out the systems that are causing them to have to be resilient. And so I don't have a better word yet, but that's kind of what I mean by being more accountable to the language that we use. Yeah, absolutely. No, that was that was beautiful. You know, uh, resilience comes up a lot in, in my work and yeah, I also am very skeptical of it because mm-hmm. it's like, why are we rewarding this thing? Oh, like, like, yes, the individuals themselves, but like, why are we striving for that when right. we can't have to look at the infrastructures that are like causing that? When we shouldn't place? want to have to strive to help communities be resilient. Like we should want all communities to be able to exist in freedom, <laughs> yeah. right? And, and so, it, you know, like ask, we have to ask ourselves like, why? What is the power imbalance that's being communicated through this language? Mm-hmm. And in my opinion, resilient, like the term resilient almost like it rewards the person, but it almost like takes away the blame from the system. It and nullifies it, like, the circumstance. Right, right. Correct. Yeah, it just erases like the... And, it's like a bad, like, good job, you made it. Yeah. <laughs> yes, but what did you make it through? And, and why did you have to make it through that? Right. So um, one of the other things that you brought up that I think is a huge is trust. And you were like, there's this massive amount of mistrust. So like as a provider, but even not just as a provider, as any person in the community right. who's trying to be open, like mm-hmm. how do you develop that trust? How do you make yourself available and open? And like, mm-hmm. how does that trust yeah. happen? Well, trust is, is easy to break and takes a long time to establish, first of all. And it's, it's the latter part that we need to be comfortable with. Trust takes a while to establish. And so that means you can't expect everybody that comes in to see you as a provider or comes in and needs your services to automatically trust you. There are very legitimate and warranted reasons why people don't trust providers. And so what that means to me is that it's incumbent upon providers to provide 
like the human side of their services to their patients, mm-hmm. right? We have to shift our, our mind of looking at healthcare through a lens of like patient numbers. And, and, and to some extent, this is a bit of a qualm I have. I have a lot of qualms in case you can't tell. Um, <laughs> with data, right? Like I understand the importance of data. It is, I'm trained in it, like it's super important. But behind every number is an actual person with a whole life history of experiences, good, bad, traumatic, ugly, wonderful. And so as a provider, I think it's an opportunity for you to learn something about each person that comes to you and to treat them as a full person. And that's actually how you start to build trust. And I actually have some experience with this, not as a provider, but early in my career, I worked in clinical research. So I was a research assistant and I worked on um, providing like informed consent, explaining sort of our research protocols to lots of different types of people. I ended up being able to enroll lots of diverse patients that the rest of my department had a really hard time doing. But it's because I didn't lead with the protocol. Mm-hmm. I live with, hey, how's your day going? How are you? I really like your nail polish. Like, so where did, where did you get it done? Is it gel? You know, like we just had a conversation yeah. a, and it's like a legit conversation that I actually wanted to know the answers to not just like I really want to know where your nail polish came from because it was cute <laughs> but it was a real conversation and so many of my other colleagues jumped right in hey we have this study you know this is what you would do and this is how long it would be like are you interested and if so will you sign here no build a rapport with someone <laughs> have an actual conversation And that's actually easier said than done, especially in this society that we're in where people don't talk to each other. I would say that the first step and the most important step to building trust is to see the person who's sitting in front of you as an individual and get to know who they are beyond just whatever condition they're presenting for. Absolutely. That's definitely true. (laughs) Yeah. So, like, could you talk about maybe – what what is the most challenging thing that you you see in your work? Mm-hmm. Like, what is that thing? Mm-hmm. That... I think it's changing people's hearts and minds, quite honestly, mm-hmm. to shift us to more of this framework of humanity. We are, I, we're not in the worst of times, like buying any structure. I don't think we are. I don't think we're in the best of times. I think that This is a really challenging period that we're in socially and globally. The biggest challenge I have in talking about health equity is helping people see the importance of caring for each other and like why, why should you care about this and like how would this actually impact you? It's pretty interesting that, you know, some of the preconceived notions that people have that, you know, well, I don't want to be responsible for those people or they wanted to have a better life. They should pull themselves up by their bootstraps. Well, first of all, that assumes three things, that you have boots, that they have straps, and that you have the energy to pull yourself up by them. So that's invalid response. But the privilege that exists among leaders, among people who have a lot of decision-making authority is the hardest thing that I, I think that I, I face. And having to, how do I couch this message in a way that even if I don't change their mind right now, it sits with them uncomfortably. Mm-hmm. 
helping people understand that nobody lives in poverty because they want to. People don't miss their doctor's appointment because they want to. Let their diabetes get uncontrolled because they want to. Die 20 years earlier than they should because they want to, right? Like these are systemic, institutionalized, systematic frameworks that are controlling people beyond their ability to break out of it. And though there are many more freedoms in this country than there are in other places of the world, I don't want to ignore that because that's very true. But there are invisible barriers and chains here that exist to still make it very hard for people to live their best life. In helping people who don't have x-ray vision see those invisible chains is the biggest challenge I have. So beyond just change on a, uh, like the provider level and the policy level, how can that change happen within a community level? Basically, how can, is there any way that community building can, can be a part mm-hmm. of correcting that imbalance and helping shift some of that dialogue from being, you know, weaker communities or whatever, Mm -hmm. how can that help shift and and create growth and development? Yeah, I think, I mean, we've seen some examples here of like very strong community coalition building, Mm -hmm. like very strong. I actually think the most change happens on the the local level. So, you know, it's funny, I think like in these recent political like cycles and elections and people are starting to finally realize like it's not that the president, it doesn't matter who the president is, like that's definitely not the case, but it really matters who your like city council person is because like they're deciding on your local zoning. They're deciding on whether or not money goes into your school systems or like where the money goes into the school systems. Are you gonna have paved sidewalks? Like where's the reinvestment money going for certain neighborhoods? And who's it gonna benefit? Is it going to spark gentrification, right? So I think community, like coalition building. So the more that community members can stay involved, can get involved and stay involved, but I don't think that's, the onus is not solely on them, right? Because when I'm trying to take care of three children on like one salary, I don't necessarily have the privilege of time to be able to go to a city council meeting of sorts. But this is also why it's important that we have other members of the community understand that like this is my burden to help carry as well. Mm-hmm. I think the more that we can integrate those voices, the better. I talk a lot to like students and they often ask me like, what can I do to help with health equity? Like, I don't know I'm gonna be in public health. I don't know that I'm gonna be a provider, but how can I help? I think to be com- um, politically engaged is one of the best ways mm-hmm. to help push the needle on health equity. Now, as a employee of a state government, I can't necessarily tell you exactly what to do in that, in that <laughs> sense, but it is a broad, there's a broad stru- spectrum of political engagement. Mm-hmm. And our policies govern how things happen. It governs where money goes. It governs what, what laws are passed and like who gets to pass them, right? Voting determines who gets to pass these laws and who gets to write them. And more and more, it's also because I'm totally biased and went to a school government, but more and more, I am seeing through both the eyes of like as a state employee and as like a private citizen, how important political engagement is. 
I think those are a couple of ways that community members can help to shift some of that power back. Yeah, one of the things I think that you could really provide a great scope on is the fact that one of the things we're really talking about in this episode is that displacement comes in a lot of forms Mm -hmm. and that it doesn't simply look like refugees coming out of other countries. We have people that are forced out of their homes everywhere. And so could you kind of talk about the other types of displacement that there are and like Mm -hmm. how those issues overlap or Mm -hmm. differ Mm -hmm. and kind of expand on that? Yeah, that is a really profound and very important point. I went to undergrad in New Orleans. I went to Xavier University, Louisiana, historically black college. And while I was there, Hurricane Katrina happened. It was my senior year of college. And so when you say displacement, I have actually been displaced myself. And I am a U.S. citizen, like I was born and raised here, but I have been displaced myself. And at that point in time, there was practically several cities, I would say half a state basically, that was displaced. Um, and so you're right, displacement comes in many forms. It's it's not just the form of international displacement, but we have people fleeing domestic violence. That's displacement, right? Like children fleeing dangerous situations in, at home, that is also displacement. I think public health is starting to recognize that more, that violence in general mm-hmm. is a public health issue. And, and as a result of seeing that and like thinking about it through that framework, like yes, recognizing that displacement comes in many forms and that we have to be ready to address that. Um, one of the other things I mentioned in my, in my talk was how we are now paying closer attention to climate change and how climate change will continue to impact our health outcomes and like what that will mean for displacement. I think I heard in May no, at the end of May, maybe like right before we went into June, there were over 500 tornadoes or something like across the country. Yeah. So displacement, right? Like this is people who live in this country, but, you know, are their homes are being destroyed and, you know, their livelihood is being destroyed. Farmers, I heard some stories about, you know, farmers and how their crops are being destroyed. Like that is a form of displacement, right? So this is also an opportunity for us to think about the social determinants of health and what that means for displacement. So in the case of New Orleans, like it wasn't the fact that people didn't want to evacuate. They literally couldn't. Why? Because they didn't have transportation. Transportation is a social determinant of health, right? So in displacement, there is the opportunity for us to help address the social determinants of health so that those people who were displaced don't have to have those same challenges again. And that's really, that is the the lens of health equity. We're trying to infuse that through our emergency preparedness operations, both in the Virginia Department of Health and on a state level, that if we're not taking into consideration people's living conditions prior to displacement in helping to get reestablished and resettled after following a traumatic event, we're not doing them justice. We're not really helping. Yeah, I don't know. I I don't know the exact wording you use, but I I found it really profound. You were talking about transportation and you were saying that that is, I don't know if you said healthcare issue or access or something like that, but like there are a whole bunch of things that go into the aspect of like healthcare and overall well-being and equity Mm -hmm. and like access to resources. Could you kind of expand on a few other examples Mm -hmm. of that? Sure. Housing is a really big one. We are, the state actually and the governor has taken a a huge stance on recognizing that housing is of significant importance. So if you are living in stable housing and you are in 
a stable neighborhood, right? Like you may have access to different school systems, right? You may have an atmosphere that will allow you to be physically active, that will preclude you from having to deal with violence. So housing is significant. And then we even think about the conditions inside of housing. So in several other larger cities and even in Richmond, studies have shown that, you know, like mold and other conditions within the house can spark health concerns. So children dealing with asthma, dealing with other allergies and other chronic illnesses because of the condition of their housing. Public housing in particular is an example of that. So housing can be either like a really great proponent of health or it can like drastically, you know, reduce the quality of your health. I would also say employment. I mean, I think employment is, for me, it's a no-brainer, but it takes some convincing for certain people. If I have access to adequate employment and maybe I'm able to also have health insurance benefits with that, right? I'm able to care for my family in a different way. I then have money that will put me in the position to be in a safe environment of housing. If I'm in a safe housing neighborhood, I can put my kids in better school. So it all builds one on top of the other. We can't really forget about any of this. And so those are a couple of the examples. Yeah, no, that's great. And kind of Um, to add to that like employment also there's like a mental health aspect of that like even like not even just like the physical access Mm -hmm. to healthcare resources but just the security yes and that security the lack of stress that you know comes with not knowing how am I going to do this and yeah absolutely and um, with the housing condition that is a huge thing within both trying to get people out of poverty but Mm -hmm. also with people that are resettling into the new country and actually one of the interviews we've conducted is about a family that was um, relocated within the United States because their housing condition was so terrible in Roanoke and moved to Blacksburg. And so I don't know how much you know about this, but I would be interested to hear your perspective Mm -hmm. on like secondary migration and this idea where like somebody, like a refugee comes to a new country and they've been resettled and there's this assumption that because they're in, Mm. in a new country, in a better country, that everything is all good and fine. But in reality, a lot of them are in bad conditions, sometimes conditions that are, you could say, even equivalent in to what they were trying to get away from. Maybe not in the aspect of the violence of the political structure Mm -hmm. and war, but they're still looking for food. There's that security aspect. So I feel like this still comes down to like value. Like, do we value everyone the same way? Which still comes down to power. And if we do value everyone the same way, are these the living conditions you would put your family in? And if, if they're not, like, why are they even offered to anyone? So, you know, I hate to like oversimplify it, but I feel like one of your earlier questions was like, what are, what's like your biggest challenge? Again, helping people see like the humanity in others. So if this is not the condition you would want to live in, if you were in the same position and had to flee your country and go to a totally different one, would you want to be living in a house like this, in an apartment like this, struggling like this? If you wouldn't want to be in that position, why would you willingly and openly let someone else live like that? So I think it's terrible. And not only do I think it's terrible, though, I think that we would be setting ourselves up, setting ourselves up to repeat the cycles of the things we're trying to fix. So it's like two steps forward, one step back. Another example of that, while we're talking about housing, is gentrification, Mm -hmm. right? So... The social determinants of health helped give us a framework of like the things we need to fix. Well, but this is the problem. When you don't go after root causes, you're just going to recreate the same problem. 
So we're not tackling root causes. We're, we're throwing money at a problem without actually looking at the power imbalances that created it. And as a result of that, we are displacing people in urban areas to suburban areas. Does that mean we've solved the problem? No. All we've done is shift it. That's another form of displacement. All we have done is shift people from the environment they knew to one that they don't know and one that's not created for them to thrive. And in long term, on one hand, someone may blindly think, look, we've accomplished, we've paid attention to the social determinants of health, of housing, and invested in community. But community for who? Because do the people who actually lived there get to benefit from that? And if they don't, then what's going to happen to them? We're recreating the same problem. It's just the remix. That's all it is. And so I, w- I would say the same thing with secondary migration. Like we are building upon additional challenges that we're still going to have to fix, right? So it's not helping anyone, especially not the families who have to who have to live in those conditions. But it's also not helping our charge to try to reach health equity. Yeah, and like your question of community for who I think is really relevant and something that we're trying to really tackle here is like, when does someone stop being a refugee and become become a member of society, a yes. neighbor, a part of the community? And it's like, when you are asking like community for who, like what does that look like? How do we begin to form that community that is inclusive? Mm-hmm. I don't know the answer to that. Like I, I wish that I did. And I think that the more that we talk openly about equity and, and the need for equitable conditions, like I think that will hopefully lend, lend it to that. But I, it's a powerful and very important question. And that's also part of mental health, right? Like feeling constantly being reminded that you're other, that you're like not a part of, you know, the in crowd. Like that's, what is that? That That's terrible. Totally. So that like that isolation. Yes. Whether that is, whether it's social isolation or even like geographic isolation, yes. all of that is contributes to that inequality and in, mm-hmm. in power and in yeah, and, and I know that we haven't really talked about it here so much, but like it makes me think of also like the language isolation that comes mm-hmm. with like being from another country and like the mental health <coughs> aspect of that is like you, you can't even make those things a priority because you can't go out and do those things. Right. And there's also right. isolation in that in like in that education, that knowledge, because like if you don't know what is available to you and you mm-hmm. don't know the person that we interviewed before you, she mm-hmm. was talking a lot about her job is educating people on mental health and, and like and, and understanding that like there is you know a problem and there are solutions and yes. there are resources available to you. So yes. there's isolation and not knowing what resources are available. Yes, there. absolutely, completely, absolutely. and and the necessity. And one of the things that she was talking about, and I'd be interested to hear um, what what you have to say about that. But we were we were talking about the stigma and like the need to actually promote. Like she sees part of her job as actually promotion of mental health mm-hmm. and it's not just convincing the individual because you have to you have to convince the individual sometimes yes. that, that that it's it's important and it's a priority mm-hmm. but also convincing the community that this is something that worth investing in mm-hmm. I mean and yeah. it goes back to the value you were mm-hmm. talking about value but mm-hmm. even mm-hmm. even bigger than that mm-hmm. like if what they're worried about is like a person who's going to be taking mm-hmm. resources mm-hmm. like investing in their mental well-being is mm-hmm. Yeah, so I showed a video clip during my talk from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, and it was about um, a woman who was basically like 
overstressed. She'd been deported like four times and constantly worried about like, is this going to happen to me again? And what will happen to my family? And so she was severely depressed. Like she said she thought she was going to die. And like she was talking to a pastor and her pastor is the one who was like, go to this clinic. They're not going to ask you about your, you know, migrant status. They're not going to ask you anything. Just go get help. And she did. And um, her life turned around for the better. And it's also, she encountered a nurse practitioner who was like her, who was from, had origins in her country and like, you know, spoke her language and like really made her feel very comfortable. And it took some convincing. It took significant convincing of her. And like, she said, we don't do this in my country. Like, we don't do this. And it's like that in, in my community as well. So, you know, my family was African-American and we, it is not something that has been outwardly promoted necessarily in the black community. I think things have changed drastically. Mm-hmm in the time that I've like been growing up but it does take some convincing and I recognize that there are cultural differences there there are significant cultural differences for lots of different reasons in the African-American community I could say that it's largely because we relied heavily on faith right we rely heavily on faith and in our church family and our pastor relationship with God and I'm not going to generalize because the black community is not monolithic but at least in my in my family that's kind of what the explanation has been and that could also be an explanation for other communities. Mm -hmm. And so what we have tried to do at least, recognizing that the faith community is a very strong partner in lots of different communities, rural, urban, immigrant, refugee, you know, resettled folks, like people will tell their pastor things they will never tell their doctor. Mm -hmm. And we are trying to better understand our communities across the state and have partnered very closely with several of our faith and interfaith organizations to try to share more of our health promotion information. And uh, Dr. Melton at Department of Behavioral Health and Developmental Services also, you know, shares information with, with our cohorts of pastors and other clergy leaders. And so I think it does, it takes a shift, but it also takes like the impo- this is the importance of like community integration mm-hmm. is knowing like well who are the power brokers in the community and that's actually who you really need to convince because if everyone looks to certain people for leadership pastors and churches and other clergymen imams and you know other leaders in in the community then they take their cue from them and so emphasizing the importance of like wellness in your mind is a part of wellness of your whole body and your whole life. We've we've sort of embarked upon that as well in the office. Yeah, that's wonderful. Thank you. So I'm I'm Middle Eastern, and a lot of I relate to that a lot. A lot of what you said about how like like within your community there isn't a huge emphasis on mental health, and I relate to that too because like there's almost like this like denying that mental health is even a component of your well being as a person. Like depression isn't seen as a real thing, and anxiety isn't either, and things like that. And so not only providing those resources, but also knowing how to disseminate those resources mm-hmm. and how to you know so like providing those resources to churches and to um, mosques and to synagogues and stuff like that and and like I think that there's a a cultural component that we have to understand in order to especially in a place like this where there's so many different cultures coming together you can't just you know you can't just like policies have to be more specific to Mm -hmm. to the regions that Mm -hmm. are that they're serving Mm -hmm. absolutely Yeah. yeah yeah I've definitely in my own family witnessed also the the idea that like faith is going to do the work yeah it's gonna do that work for you yeah and so, I think adding to yeah. to what you were saying that 
helping people see that also suppressing those feelings makes you sick. Yeah. Right? Like that literally depression, depressing my feelings makes me not well. Mm-hmm. And and so I completely understand. I agree with you both. Thank you. Um, I, I had one last thing I was just hoping that I could get from you before we, we let you go. Thank you so much for doing this. Sure, um, sure. But yeah, I wanted, I wanted to ask you to talk about misconceptions and to be like, what are the misconceptions that you're kind of trying to challenge in your work? Mm-hmm. And like, what do you want people to know? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. People don't choose to be sick. People don't choose to be poor. People don't choose to have to flee from conflict and like resettle their whole lives in a total different place. That we have to have more empathy and compassion for each other. In in a lot of my talks, I, I try I end with something like so simple, like love your neighbor as yourself. That's it. <laughs> I mean, like I honestly feel like health health equity is like a remix version of the gospel, honestly. And it it's just trying to remind people that we, I am my brother's keeper. Like I, your health is an extension of mine. Mm-hmm. And as long as we have people who are, are not well because of the conditions we have created in society and have contributed to, I will not be well either. Like my wellness is in jeopardy. And just the misperceptions that people are living in the conditions that they chose for themselves. It is not that simple. It's just not. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. you. Production of the In Place podcast is sponsored by the Center for Refugee, Migrant, and Displacement Studies at Virginia Tech and is made possible by the brilliance and hard work of Virginia Tech students and faculty with the support and contributions of community members in the Commonwealth. For more information on this episode, our guests, or the podcast, please visit the InPlace website at inplacepodcast.com where you will find descriptions of other episodes, links to the books and articles referenced by our guests, and a blog where Virginia Tech students develop their ideas on themes discussed on our show. You can also find links to other activities sponsored by the Center for Refugee, Migrant, and Displacement Studies at Virginia Tech. For questions or ideas for an episode, please email us at inplacepodcast at vt.edu.